I'm a big proponent of not dumbing things down. You don't need to dumb things down, but explaining it in a way people understand. So whether it's an infographic or whether it is a chart on how, you know, efficient irrigation benefits the environment or food production or whatever else it is, right? Putting it graphically and visually in a way that makes sense along with the written word, I'm a big fan of. Along with an- both anecdotal examples, evidence, and data. You need to have both. There, there, there's room for both. It doesn't all have to be peer-reviewed case studies. It doesn't, nor should it all be anecdotal evidence. It should be both to help tell that story and have some power behind it. Welcome to What Are We Talking About, a podcast produced by Water Online. Hosts Jim Laurier of Maisie Injector Company and Adam Tank of Transcend Water, a dynamic boomer millennial combo, will help you demystify how to build a better brand for your business, keep current and prospective customers engaged with your company, and ultimately grow your sales. They interview some of the most interesting and unique water professionals who have used the art of storytelling to move the needle for themselves and for their organizations. Well, today's guest is John Farner. John is the Chief Sustainability Officer for Netafim, an Israeli company that's focused on precision irrigation. And John, you and I have known each other for a long time when you were part of the Irrigation Association, doing the work around uh, government affairs and public relations. And I was working for an Israeli company, Amiad. And uh, so it goes back, what, 10 years at least, right? When were you, uh, first, thanks for having me. So when were you there, Jim? What years? So I was there from 2007 until 2012. Okay, then that makes sense. I uh, joined the Irrigation Association in September of 2008. Uh, and I was there through May of 2021. So yeah, that, that makes sense. So that, that is around the time that we, uh, we would have met each other. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's been been 13 years since I joined the IA. So it's been a long time. Exactly. And John, we've only recently met through Jim. Uh, yeah, yeah, we went way back to like two weeks ago, Adam. Yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> the friendship runs deep. Yeah, it runs so, deep. Yeah. So Jim, Jim has I've I've mainly spent my time on the industrial and municipal side. So Jim has introduced me to a number of really interesting people on the agriculture side. Yeah. which I love to talk about. And that's where we're going to start today with our discussion. Oh, there are unique and interesting people on both sides, Adam. Believe there me. Are, there are. I mean, Having for the Irrigation yeah. Association, I've seen all shapes, sizes, and everything else in between. So <laughs> Only imagine. So one of the things we're going to talk about today and hone in on is, is that topic of communicating with various stakeholders in agriculture. But before we go too deep into that, I want you to give us sort of a high level picture of what it's like working for an Israeli company in the US and the stories and communication that you're telling about your products and services to the market. Yeah, uh, so I have, um, I've been with Netafim now for two months, just over two months. So I'm still relatively new with the organization. Uh, I'd say that, um, First of all, the seven-hour difference between uh, you know in, in time zones is probably the biggest challenge that we have so far in working with the team from Israel. But what I will say is that generally speaking, uh, the Israeli culture is is fascinating to me. 
the uh, startup culture and nature that Israelis have is one that I was just in awe when I was when I was there a few weeks ago. Um, and the story that Israelis have as a culture, number one, is fascinating and historic and unmatched, quite frankly. But two, when looking at Netafim, we'd have to go the whole way back to Kibbutz Hatzarim in the 1940s when drip irrigation was invented. And we in the United States, we know about drip irrigation. We know about center pivot irrigation. We know the players in the market, right? And we know generally where things are and how it's irrigated and the value proposition of efficient irrigation and everything else. But we're very rarely do we think back to the history behind these technologies, you know, from center pivots with Valley in, in first being invented in Colorado and being brought over to Nebraska. And then you look at drip irrigation again on Kibbutz Hatzarim in the 1940s and the birth of Netafim coming out of trying to make the area, this kibbutz in the desert, more green and more lively through, through drip irrigation. And everything was born out of that and then brought to the United States 40 years ago with the advent of uh, Netafim USA. And now there's many players in the market that are involved in this. So the stories run deep. Right. And the story we have as an industry that we try to tell at the Irrigation Association, and now I have a unique opportunity to tell us from a drip irrigation perspective, is one that is, number one, rooted in water and that journey of water. Right. And where it starts and where it goes and what becomes of it at the end. Uh, and it's one, you know, from the drip irrigation perspective, we can now translate that to the end of life of our products and what we grow out of the ground and where that's being used. And it's it's just it's just fascinating to me, uh, the stories you can tell from different different perspectives um, in working for a company like Netafim. Yeah, John. So, you know, it's now uh, this month, July, is, as you well know, Smart Irrigation Month. And uh, you were very involved in that when you were with the Irrigation Association. And I know you developed some tools around the story of water to, to tell people. Can you give us some ideas about those stories, those tools that you, you, that you had developed uh, as part of the IA? Yeah. Smart Irrigation Month is one of those initiatives that when looking back, when I'm you know retired um, and looking back on what the organizations I've worked with, accomplished when I was there. I didn't say it was me that accomplished it. It was the organization that was it accomplished it when I was there and I was a part of it. Uh, Smart Irrigation Month is, is one that I will look back and one that I'll be most proud of, you know, or up there with one of the things that, that I would be most proud of. Uh, in that when, in the advent of, of Smart Irrigation Month, it was really just encouraging the industry to promote Smart Irrigation Month. And we really didn't really have any meat behind that message. There wasn't anything behind it. It was like, hey, celebrate Smart Irrigation Month. It's like, well, okay, how, why do we do this? And it went through a metamorphosis, so to speak, uh, a little while back where we really developed tools and messages and themes, quite frankly, for the irrigation industry to help share with the public, with their customers, with others who had an interest in anything irrigation or anything water or anything landscape or utility, municipality, agriculture, you name it. So we tried to have, we tried to create themes that everyone could use 
and take their own way. And we try to create messages for these different, uh, different audiences that the different companies could then use to their advantage. And I think I told you guys this a little while back, but it's interesting now having gone from the trade association to a for-profit company with competitors where I'm seeing my competitors use stuff that I wrote when I'm at the irrigation association to promote their stuff. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, what's going on. But I think it's great. I think it's, it, it I'm a, I'm a true believer in that the rising tide lifts all boats. And the more we can get a positive message out there on the benefits of efficient irrigation, the benefits of irrigation period, the better we're all going to do. And, uh, and so I was really proud of those kinds of messages and those kinds of themes that we took, whether it was food or water or, you know, natural resources or whatever it was, I was really excited to help to help do that. John, when we talk about communication materials, I'm thinking about things like PowerPoint decks and templates and case study examples and how to set up the best web, you know, web page and all that stuff. Is that what we're talking about or is it? Uh, you know, I, uh, I used to kid around. Um, you guys may know a former colleague of mine at the Irrigation Association, Brent Meekham. And Brent is an institution in and of himself where he he's has a lot of technical knowledge regarding irrigation. And I always kid it around when we were in a staff meeting or we're meeting with others that weren't really knowledgeable about the te technicalities behind irrigation, the engineering behind irrigation, that I would tr help translate Brent into like regular person speak. And so I'm a big proponent of not dumbing things down. You don't need to dumb things down, but explaining it in a way people understand. So whether it's an infographic or whether it is a chart on how, you know, efficient irrigation benefits the environment or food production or whatever else it is, right? Putting it graphically and visually in a way that makes sense along with the written word I'm a big fan of, along with an, both anecdotal examples, evidence, and data. You need to have both. There, there, there's room for both. It doesn't all have to be peer-reviewed case studies. It doesn't, nor should it all be anecdotal evidence. It should be both to help tell that story and have some power behind it at the same time. So the so the so I want to dig into that with a specific example. I was at a membrane technology conference this week. Oh, that sounds if, like a lot of fun. So, uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. And here's 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 the example. So, let's assume there's an engineer or a you know a technical engineer, sales engineer that's listening to this podcast right now, and they're going, "Well, yeah, duh, John, I've got pump curves, which is a graphic, and I've got text to go along with it." Yep, that's exactly what I need, right? Yeah. Wow. How would you recommend that person? either change that messaging or supplement that messaging or, you know, add on to what is oftentimes presented as the de facto default gold standard of technical water information. Yeah. You need to translate that to how it affects everyday life, how people understand it. Right. So if I have, if I have data that shows, I don't know, let's take, let's take carbon, for example. Okay, carbon is a big thing going on right now in the world. So reducing carbon emissions, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, and it's a big focus of agriculture right now when looking at soil health and everything else, right? So there's all kinds of data behind the health of soil and mitigating carbon emissions from ag production. 
And so we can talk about linear graphs and data and numbers and everything else. But what people need to understand is, okay, how does that matter to me when I'm going to a grocery store and buying food or decisions that I make every day? I don't understand, right? So it depends on the audience is. If your audience is like, say, let's say a policymaker, for example. Let's say you're trying to change policies affecting water use in agriculture or municipality use, whatever it is, and you're talking about carbon. So you go to a you go to a policymaker, and not all policymakers are created equal. Some are very smart, and let's just say some are not very smart. We can all guess who they are. Okay. When you go to them, you can have all the data in the world behind you, but they're not going to understand how that translates. So having the anecdotal evidence and saying, okay, well, if I'm growing rice this way and we translate it to this way, uh, we save, we'd save this percentage. And you have all these studies and data on how to formalize how you got that data, but just highlighting the overall outcome in a specific area and specific, specific topography or climate, that's what makes a lot of sense, right? That's kind of a, that's kind of a difficult example to explain, but you really, it needs to be both. You need to have a data behind it, but explain it in a way that makes sense. You're listening to the Water We Talking About podcast. We'll be right back after this short break. This podcast is produced by Water Online, the leading web-based community for water and wastewater professionals, showcasing the knowledge and authority of industry thought leaders, Water Online provides actionable content from vendors you can trust. And now, back to today's podcast. While Adam was at the uh, conference uh, attending these presentations, he's texting me, these guys are killing me. <laughs> They're just showing data. Yeah, <laughs> I've, been irrigation, I've been at irrigation conferences, Jim, in the past where that has been my quite frankly, I'm not going to name which ones, right? Because that's not fair. But my biggest complaint where I don't know who their audience is. I don't know if the audience was just a bunch of, you know, academics, but what they were translating didn't even matter to industry, let alone farmers. So I don't know who their audience was. Uh, But yeah, I completely agree. You just missed the mark. You missed the mark completely. Yeah, John. So one of the things, I mean, now you're working for an Israeli company, you brought up, and, and I think it's a great book. I don't know if you've read it, Startup Nation. Have you yeah. have you read that book? I've yet? not read it. Yeah. I'm very familiar. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what, uh, working for an Israeli company, it's really, I mean, I, I put that at the top of the list yeah. to, to read. It's really a great book. I read it when I was working for Amiyad, and it really helped me a lot. But so you're an American working for an Israeli company, and now you're you're pretty much in charge of you're chief sustainability officer worldwide. So from a global perspective, have you given much thought about how you're going to tell the stories to the different cultures that you're now going to be involved with? You know, it uh, stories resonate different to different cultures and different societies. So what works in the United States may not work in South Africa or Russia or parts of Europe uh, or you know, India. So we really need to be very cognizant of the local markets and what our story is, whether it's we're talking about the importance of recycling or we're talking about productivity based on water use. or we're talking about different kinds of technologies and what our value proposition is. It's, it's different. So our goal up front is to really look at this globally and set the direction for the company. 
and our commitment to sustainability and what that means, both from an agricultural perspective and our role in sustainable agriculture, which is basically the, the literal roots of why our company was created, right? So our continued role in regenerative agriculture or climate smart agriculture, sustainable agriculture, whatever, whatever, how you want to describe it, right? How we play a role in that. But then we have to look internally too. We want to be a sustainable company. We have a commitment to the environment. We have a commitment to society, right? We have a commitment to our ecosystems. So what are we doing internally to match our commitment to sustainable agriculture from a production or a way of business and how we do things? And so that's really been the, the, the next step, so to speak, of our commitment at Metafem is ensuring that we are sustainable. Our, our journey of sustainability doesn't start when our product hits the field. It starts when our employees wake up in the morning and everything we're doing through our going to work, to the manufacturing, the design, R&D, um, manufacturing, distribution, and everything else in between. And then when that product hits the farm and then what happens at end of life. And everything else in between. That's that's our that's our sustainable journey. So we're taking it beyond the farm, and we're looking internally as well. And that's really that is the goal that of moving forward for Netafim over the next, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. So John, one one of the things you just mentioned was the way you get to work. What? How does that translate from that that you know gorgeous mission that everyone's working towards to like? Sure. Do I decide to get in my car or on my bike this morning? Yeah, sure. Well, again, look at different societies. If I'm in uh, Holland, I'm riding my bike. If I'm in Amsterdam, I'm riding my bike because that's what people do in in uh, in, in, in the Netherlands. Uh, I learned that the very hard way. I'm not thinking uh, thinking that the pedestrians had the right of way. I could not have been more incorrect <laughs> in, in, in 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 Amsterdam. But yeah, uh, looking at. Uh, how we invest in our vehicle fleet, for example. Does it make sense to invest in hybrid or electric? And I challenge other competitors to do the same thing. And this is just, that's, can we have a hybrid model of working from home and working in the office? Um, what are we doing? Are we recycling pieces? Are we not Are we, Are we? we not printing out pieces of paper? Do we just look at them on a screen? Can we recycle them uh, when we're done? Do we have access to recycling facilities globally like we do in the United States? Those are the kinds of things we're thinking about, right? We're not making any promises. We're just we're just thinking about them right now. Like, where should we put our focus here? Because we are a very much a mission-driven company. I think we're a mission-driven industry as well. But I know Netafim and coming there, we're a very mission-driven company. And so a lot of our employees, I'd say the great majority of our employees, wake up and believe in what we're doing, believe in the benefits of efficient irrigation, drip irrigation, and really look at it as making a mark in society, whether it's saving water, increasing productivity, increasing our food, ensuring a safe, reliable food supply, whatever it is, right? We believe in what we're doing. Um, and so anything we can do to harness that energy with our employees to really you know, make a difference in their everyday lives, that's, we're, we're trying to harness that. And really, and so it, if, it can mean wake up in the morning and how you get to work, then great. We're going to give people the opportunity to, to do that. Um, in the future. Yeah, John, I like the idea about the end of cycle, uh, the end of the life cycle, what you're doing with that product, because a lot of companies feel, well, I sold to the end user. What happens to it afterwards is his problem, right? I, I don't have to worry about it. But I think 
you know, more people are taking a look at that. And, uh, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about that? How, how, how you're looking at, it's not just making the product, but, you know, taking control of that product through its entire life cycle. You know, uh, we, our industry makes a lot of plastic. I'd say all of irrigation makes a lot of plastic. You know, not just drip irrigation, everybody. So landscape irrigation, you know, drip irrigation, we make a lot of plastic. And we really need to reconcile the amount of plastic we're making with our commitment to sustainability in the environment. And, you know, I was in, uh, I flew through San Francisco not too long ago, and I was looking for just a bottle of Coke. You know, it's early in the morning, one with caffeine jolt. And I didn't realize this, I've not flown through San Francisco in a while, uh, that you cannot buy anything plastic in that airport. It's all aluminum, it's cans. There's no plastic bottles anywhere in that airport. And so San Francisco, very progressive, not surprising that they are first in the market to really not sell plastics in that location. But it got me thinking of the amount of plastic that we manufacture throughout our industry. And again, if we're committed to true sustainability and true sustainable agriculture, we really need to look at end of life and look at opportunities to have not have our product go straight to landfill. Are there other opportunities to use this material? And so Netafim does have a commitment to that. We have a recycling facility in Fresno, California, where we collect the product, put that into our, our recycling facility, manufacture it as part of our product and push it back out through a regen program. So it's it's a very 360 solution to this. It's not the only solution. It's not the only solution that's out there. It's one that works for us. And it's one of our value propositions as a company. And it's something we're looking to scale globally too. So it's it's um that is a commitment we have is to looking at end of life and significantly reducing or looking at that end of life and what happens to our material at that end of life. How are you thinking about the trade-off between what's best for the business and what's best for a mission towards sustainability? Not to say that they're mutually exclusive because- Yeah, no, they're not, but I view it as one and the same, Adam. Uh, I, I view it as one and the same. And I think a lot of companies have this problem, reconciling sustainability and being a profit-driven company. Let me use an example. Walmart, Walmart years ago, was out in front on sustainability. We're talking 2008, 9, 10, and they were making significant changes in their business operations relating to sustainability. I remember the Irrigation Association held a water conference many moons ago, I'd say 2009, 10, and 11, we held them. Uh, somewhere in Park City, Utah, there was one in, uh, between Denver and Boulder, Colorado, I forget, where it was, but we had a few of them. And one of them, we actually had someone that worked on sustainability with Walmart come and speak and give a presentation on what they were doing. And the original thought that I had when seeking out opportunities for someone to speak was someone to talk about what they're doing on the procurement side for their customers relating to agriculture. How are they working with their growers to be more sustainable when they're purchasing you know, fruits, vegetables, cereals, whatever it is to put in the shelves at Walmart? Rather, it, it changed into their facilities manager coming and talking about changes they were making. He wasn't a facilities manager. He was sustainability for, for facilities for Walmart out of Bentonville, Arkansas, talking about 
the changes they're making at Walmart's facilities to be more sustainable. And Adam, Jim, <laughs> it was profit driven and environmentally driven at the exact same time. You know, anything as simple as reducing when you close a freezer and the lights reduce, right? You can still see inside, right? But the lights aren't blaring in those freezers 24 seven. Uh, looking at cardboard boxes, they switched to a, a, they transformed into selling those cardboard boxes. Instead of just throwing them away or recycling them, they sold them for other uses. That's a money-making opportunity then. Investing in smart controllers for their irrigation systems on properties. People don't think that Walmart and Target and others are high water use for irrigation. They are. They have a lot of property out there that's irrigated. And so they went through a process of putting weather-based irrigation controllers on their properties. That saved a lot of water. Again, saving money. So sustainable decisions you make under the umbrella of sustainability, that can be driven by environmentally conscious, can also translate to money savings and profit-driven opportunities as well. They are not mutually exclusive. They, they can be both. John, why don't you tell the audience how you think, and you've been involved with trade associations, obviously, how you think they can be more engaged with the trade associations within the realm of, of their applications, their sectors? When I was with the Irrigation Association, I would work with anyone and everyone who was willing to give time and expertise to whatever we were doing. Um, when the, the professional staff of trade associations are not necessarily experts on the industry. They are experts at their, their own uh, area of which they work on for the association. So is it education? Is it certification? Is it meeting planning? Is it you know, IT? Whatever it is. Is it advocacy? Whatever it is, they have an expertise at that certain thing. The expertise may not be about the industry. Now, I was there for 13 years, so I gained an, a level of knowledge about the irrigation industry that I didn't have two, three, four years into the job. So when I was there, I was always looking for people who could share their expertise and help me and the Irrigation Association, in my case, achieve our goals. So whether it was helping on specifics for center pivot, variable irrigation, and how that translated to opportunities for federal funding, right? Or is it the needs and wants of the industry in education and what the market gaps are for education? The education people don't know that. They know how to run an education program. They don't know what those gaps in the industry are for education and where the market opportunities exist in the, in the industry to sell irrigation, or to sell education uh, in a way that benefits members right? And would help our product being used in the field. They don't know that. So engaging in the trade association with that level of expertise helps your company, helps the association, and helps the industry all at the exact same time. So again, I, I'm a firm believer in the rising tide lifts all boats. The stronger the industry association is, the stronger your industry is. They're mutually beneficial well, said, one another. Well, I've said before, if, if we in the water industry don't understand the term a rising tide lifts all boats, 
There's no hope for us. <laughs> right. We're all sunk. I think that's how you end that one, Jim, right? Exactly. Right. That's all right. Exactly so right. we're coming up on time, John. We like to keep these to just under 30 minutes. Our final question for you is this. And because we're talking about ag, I feel like we have to use uh, a crop duster here as an example. So Jim and I have <laughs> now have a super powered crop duster that you can fly all around the world. And behind that crop duster has a banner and you get a tweet's worth of characters to fly that plane in front of every single water professional's home around the world. What do you want that banner to say? Well, first of all, crop duster, huh? Well, I hope you're not, you know, be very careful where you're spraying stuff. So that, that's, that's kind of the first thing that I'll say. You know, I've, gosh, I'm sure you've asked this to a lot of your, your folks that have been on your, your podcast. Um, so the audience is water professionals. Adam, is that what you're talking about? So if you're a water professional, you already have a commitment to the industry. You know, I, I would say something along the lines of, and this is not going to be eloquent, it's not going to be, but I would say something along the lines of, you know, we need more of you or keep doing what you're doing with water. Because a lot of times, those of us in the water profession and just take ag out of it in the water profession, I using the term unsung heroes is kind of cliche, so to speak, but a lot of times we're afterthoughts. We're afterthoughts to energy. We're afterthoughts to a lot of the other higher profile environmental things until we are the highlight. If there's drought, if there's other kind of, if there's floods, then all of a sudden the water professionals come in and save the day, right? We just need folks to, to stay committed and to stay passionate and to stay vocal uh, because without their expertise, folks like Adam, you and Jim and others, it's, it's, we're, we're going to continue being an afterthought. So it's, I think it's important to stay out there, to stay active, stay involved and stay vocal in what you're doing and continue to tell your story from whatever perspective it is, whether you're working for a water utility or you're the irrigation manager at a farm, what you're doing, 80% of global water resources goes to irrigation, 80%, 80%. That's crazy. A fresh water goes to agriculture. The fact that ag has the potential to save so much water through their actions and activities and processes. It's amazing. And then not to mention all of the potable water that's managed by utilities. And it just, just keep doing what you're doing and stay active and stay vocal is what I'd say. That's great, Sean. Yeah, it's good stuff. Thanks a lot. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us. And I know we're gonna, the, the audience is going to get a lot of value from what you had to say. No, I appreciate it. And uh, Jim, I know I'm looking forward to seeing you at the irrigation show and Angelo Mazzi to celebrate his award is coming up. So it's um, it's uh, it's a great honor and congratulations about that again. Yeah. I'm looking forward to yeah, once thanks. again seeing people in person. So it's going to be good. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely.